Hello and a warm welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskila and I'm back with my co-host and editor of Gold, Helena Beer. How are you doing today, Helena? Very well, thank you, Mark. How about yourself? Yes, very well, thank you, Helena, and extremely happy to be bringing our listeners another excellent episode of Gold. So coming up this week, we've got a great interview with Isabel Afonso, General Manager at Novartis Oncology, about pharma in China, untapped markets and innovation in her area of work. That's right. And I had a really interesting chat with Dr. Fareed Khan, CEO at PharmaCure, about drug development and the future landscape for neurodegenerative diseases, among other things. But first, let's dive into the news with things you might have missed. So, Helena, what's been in the news this week? Well, there's been a big focus on genomics this past week and an important set of shared commitments being set out by the UK government and the three devolved nations, so the Welsh and Scottish governments and the Northern Ireland Assembly. The commitments focus on priority actions for genomics initiatives across the UK, including faster cancer diagnosis, earlier detection of diseases, improved patient access to clinical trials and better, more personalised treatment. There will also be a renewed focus on research, championing innovative and cutting edge industry partnerships in research and development to improve collaboration, maximise investment and feed back into the NHS to improve patient care. The ultimate aim is to advance the government's priorities to reform healthcare and cement the UK's position as the leading global hub for life sciences and the commitments have been welcomed across the sector. Indeed. Other important measures that have been welcomed by the sector here in the UK include many of those announced in the Chancellor's Spring Statement, in particular the R&D tax relief reform. So as of April 2023, all cloud computing costs associated with R&D, including storage, will qualify for relief. This is great news for data-heavy research such as genomic sequencing. The government's commitment to reviewing the apprenticeship levy is also good news for life sciences and Richard Torbert, chief executive of the ABPI, said this is something the association's members have been calling for and they look forward to working with the government to get this right. Next up, Gold's very own content and editorial assistant, Cheyenne Eugene, chats with Isabel Afonso, General Manager at Novartis Oncology China. Cheyenne and Isabel initially worked together on a recent feature titled Pharma in China, which you can find on the Gold website and in our most recent issue of the magazine. Yes, following on from the feature, Isabel further explored the pharmaceutical landscape in China, focusing on biotechs, untapped markets and the potential of partnerships with multinational corporations. So let's see what she had to say. So Isabel, hi, really pleased to have you with us today. Um, Let's get started. First, I wanted to talk about your formal education and your time within the industry. Both are very broad. Your formal education, it spans the course of about 20 years and you cover areas such as computer science, business and management and genetics and cancer biology. Your time within the industry is also very varied. You spent a lot of that with Novartis um, in different roles, but then you also ventured down different paths as well as that. Can you walk us through this journey and explain how you ended up taking the path that you did and how it led you to where you are now? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, it's incredible to think that I had my first full-time job 26 years ago. I'm originally from Portugal, and I'm a computer science engineer, driven by the curiosity of the IT booming at the time, and also the intellectual challenge associated with that. 
I co-founded a startup in the education sector at the age of 23. Our startup was sponsored by the government at the time. This was all in parallel with my full-time job where I started to be a team leader quite early. I moved to Switzerland almost 20 years ago to join Novartis. I have to say this was really a pivotal moment for me. I stayed 16 years with Novartis and had an incredible experience. I also did some disruptive moves inside the company. Maybe the most impactful one was to step down from a very senior global role in IT based in Switzerland to be a sales representative as part of a rotation program in Spain. I became the general manager of Sandoz in Switzerland, a new division, a new business for me within the Novartis Group. After that, I led a cluster of countries within Europe and after joined the executive committee of Sandoz, which is a division of Novartis, approximately 10 billion US dollars. And I was the head of global commercial operations based in Germany. During this incredible period, I joined INSEAD Business School for my international management program. It's like a mini MBA for leaders with quite a few years of experience already, and Harvard Leadership Program and few other business schools with high focus on leadership and also business topics. In 2018, I decided, however, to take an opportunity as the head of international business in a medtech company, Performance Health. And it was also different uh, from what I did before that I could not resist to go and do it. After about a year later, I became the chief commercial officer and he had also a great experience to lead the US market. In parallel, I consistently continued to learn. I always have this principle of lifelong learning. Uh, I continued my education and completed the certification in genetics and genomics, including cancer biology and gene therapy from Stanford Medical School. I loved it so much that triggered an unstoppable desire to work in oncology. That's great. Thank you for um, the overview. You were quoted in Gold's Pharma in China feature in the most recent issue. Could you give us a short overview of the recent developments of the pharmaceutical industry in China? What would you say are sort of the main highlights? The pharma industry has been developing at a fast pace in the last few years. China is now the second largest market in the world after US. The pharmaceutical spend is projected to reach 117 billion US dollars by 2023. The main contributors for this fast development are a few. First, the economic growth in the past few years. Secondly, healthcare is a top priority for the Chinese government, which has been accelerating the reforms and opening up the pharmaceutical and healthcare sectors, enabling faster drug approvals and also broadening the market access. The third, I would say, improving patent protection has helped tremendously to create a pro-innovation environment. This has been an incredible progress. However, I should also say that we still see an enormous unmet demand with the aging demographic and increasing prevalence of many diseases, including cancers and blood disorder diseases here in this country.
Thank you. So the feature mentions biotechs as being an upcoming and potentially really lucrative space for multinational corporations to invest in, particularly in the area of oncology we kind of touch on. Could you expand on this? Biopharma sector uh, in China is developing fast and the partnerships landscape evolves rapidly as well. More than 140 new biotech companies emerged in China from 2010 to 2020, and 70% of these recently listed local biotechs focus actually on oncology. This really opened opportunities for cross-border licensing deals between multinational groups and also the Chinese pharma companies. Just to give an idea, in 2020, 271 such deals were closed, four times bigger, higher number when compared with 2015, including clinical trials, development and commercialization. The China biotech in oncology space is really spanning across different technologies and mode of action on how a drug could work to fight cancer. Untapped markets is another area that's touched on in the feature, specifically with so-called lower tier cities. Um, that refers to those with a population between 200,000 and 3 million. It's been suggested that so far, multinational corporations haven't been able to find enough resources to penetrate this area and these sort of lower tier cities. How do you see this challenge being overcome? Well, this is a really important question because it's important to provide access to the innovative medicines where the patients are. There are different approaches. Our company are currently addressing the unmet needs in those lower cities, which we call broad market. Some companies are going directly to the lower cities with their own teams to expand their service coverage. Typically, a different go-to-market on this broad market model when compared with the so-called core market. Uh, and other companies like us at Novartis work with partners already established in these areas to reach the healthcare professionals and also the patients. I believe a lot more to learn and develop in this broad market, but certainly important to our purpose of reaching more patients with our innovative medicines. Yeah, absolutely. And where would you say that the most potential innovation lies for these untapped markets? Should China and these multinational corporations partner together? From my perspective and my initial observation so far, I would say research and development is a promising area for partnerships. If I look at Novartis, our research and development organization is one of the most productive in the industry. However, drug discovery is like a team sport and therefore collaborating with innovators inside and outside of the company is important. Ultimately, we must strive to break down barriers in science to accelerate medical discovery. Like any large pharmaceutical company, portfolio typically contains programs coming from own labs and also in licensed from other companies. China biotechs are emerging with promising innovation in oncology. Multinationals are open to collaborate with high quality innovators from any area around the world, including China. So I expect much more to come in the innovation space from China. That's great. Thank you. Moving on now. So you've worked and lived in Portugal, Switzerland, Germany, Spain, temporarily in the US, and now you're based in China. Um, not to make our listeners feel bad about themselves, but you do also speak a very impressive six languages to differing degrees. 
Have you noticed any stark differences or similarities at all in work culture between the US, Europe and China? Well, I absolutely love to learn about the different cultures and understand the roots and the values that are the base for the differences. When it comes to work culture, I believe here is also influenced by the company culture itself. At Novartis Oncology, the culture of inspire, being curious and unboss in the sense of empowering shapes very much our working environment. However, what I see by being physically present with our teams here in China is the pace. This country, this market is developing at an incredible fast pace and this influences the way how the team works. The incredible speed, how the team operates is probably different from any other market or country I experienced before. And finally, where has been your favorite place to live so far and why is that? I think my favorite place is where I am at a given time. I still love my home country, Portugal. My second home became Switzerland as I lived there most of my adult life so far. Now I'm really enjoying to live here in Shanghai with my family and explore really this vibrant city, uh, Shanghai, and also the country itself. Every experience has been very enriching professionally and personally, beating German in Spain and being in a short assignment in the US, all very, very valuable, I have to say. I'm now happy where I am and let's see what the, the future brings to further explore. Brilliant. Thank you, Isabel. What a lovely note to end on. Lovely to hear from Isabel there and a nice follow on from our recent Farmer in China feature where she shared even more of her expertise. It's one of our most popular recent features and for a very good reason. Exactly. So if you're interested in reading that feature in full, be sure to head over to the Gold website where you can find it and much more great Gold content. We'll leave a link in the show notes for you. Next up, we have a discussion between Helena and Dr. Farid Khan, CEO and founder of Pharmacure, a speciality biopharmaceutical company dedicated to the treatment of neurodegenerative diseases. He additionally acts as chief scientific officer at Selvira, a company that discovers, develops and commercialises oral therapies for viral diseases. Yes, I caught up with Farid on a variety of topics, including his inspiration for entering the field, the ongoing need for drug development and much, much more. It was great to get down to the scientific details of biopharmaceuticals, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Let's have a listen. Farid, hi. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good to hear. So we're here today to talk about your experience in and insights into drug development. So by way of introduction, can you tell us a little bit about your current roles and your specialist interests? Absolutely. Uh, my current role is a Chief Scientific, a scientific Officer of Selvira and CEO of Pharmacure. Um, Selvira is a company works in antiviral therapy and Pharmacure works in uh, CNS, uh, Alzheimer's, and neurodegenerative diseases. Lovely. That is great. Um, so I know that you spent um, a bit of time as a drug discovery scientist at GSK, and I was wondering what your most influential experience was while you were working there. Yeah, this was very pivotal. So the, the problem is, you know, if you're going to try to find cures for diseases and, and, and test them, you, you know, you can't really go uh, go and start injecting these into people. 
you have to design what they call an assay. So what is an assay? Now, an assay is a, like a little mimicry of the, uh, the, the disease, if you like. And they're in tiny, tiny little test tubes. And those we call microplates. So, for example, if there's a, there's a protein um, that res, is you know, responsible for uh, infection in bacteria, we actually just make that protein. And then we add various uh, chemicals to it to see if we can deactivate that protein. Because if you deactivate that protein, you deactivate that function in the bacterium. Mm-hmm. So what we were doing in GSK and, and many pharmaceutical companies was really to see these little in vitro testing to see if we can knock out anything which is important in all these organisms. And we're talking um, not only, you know, bacteria, we're talking viruses, we're talking, you know, cancers. So you can make all these little micro models. So that that's the most important thing is, you know, if we can make these little models, then you can test thousands and thousands of compounds, which could be p- potentially one or two of them could be drugs. And this is how drug development works. So the exciting thing was, you know, working with robots, liquid handling systems, and GSK, you know, it's got a lot of money. You know, you could just go and plug and play and make new toys. And there was one particular person called Keith Moore, very smart guy, he's still around and we're still working together. Um, and he kind of taught me this way of measurements. You know, if you can measure what's going on uh, with these proteins and the interaction of the drugs, then we can translate those into, you know, real drugs uh, in, dr- in the drug development pipeline. In other words, the first beginnings of finding a drug for a particular disease. That's brilliant. So um, with all of your kind of experimentation, how often would you say that something came up that was a kind of a legitimate um, avenue that you could go down? Oh, that's a that's an excellent question. So, you know, for for every perhaps 100,000 screens that you do experimental, you may pick up one. Oh, wow. So, um, and even then that might not. So the problem we have is... You know, there's the pipeline for development. You know, once you find something, it, it, it might take about 10 to 15 years to develop before it goes into um, you and I. It goes through clinical phases. It takes too long. So, you know, I, I thought, well, forget all that. You know, perhaps what we can do is use old drugs for new purposes. And this is done by all pharmaceutical companies. Um, but it's not very explicit. So uh, let's take an example. So if you take aspirin, so, you, you know, if you have a headache, etc., you know, aspirin gets rid of that headache. However, what aspirin also does, uh, it, it, it interacts uh, within your blood and stops sort of clotting. So it can stop that process. So it can be used as a thinner as well, a blood thinner. So it has two effects. So what what we're talking about uh, for example, with a company called Salvira, they have um, a drug, and that drug is used uh, as a flu drug. You know, it's 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 marketed as a flu drug. It's called Avagan. But what they've done is taken that flu drug and now uh, are testing into COVID. So you know, and they're and they're vir- viruses in the same way. So you can utilize certain drugs for other diseases. You know, this is known. And similarly with Pharmacure, this is what we're doing. We're looking at old drugs to see if we can utilize them in Alzheimer's. So 
what I'm trying to say is that if you have all these old drugs, you know the safety of these things. So you don't have to do phase one per se. You can you know, skip a couple of phases and go to phase two and et cetera. So you shorten that development pipeline so that, you know, it can go into human beings quickly because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these drugs are required for these diseases, which some of them don't have any cures. Absolutely. That's amazing. The different kind of applications that one drug can have. Is it um, something that's quite obvious that something could be adapted for something else? Or is it something that you kind of need to just have a stab in the dark and see if it works? Or is it a combination of those two? Uh, No, that's that is the excellent question, because, um, you know, a lot of this is done via uh, serendipity. Uh, And and so... um, People find that, you know, they, they took one drug and suddenly uh, their rash went for something else, you know, and it becomes a treatment for something else. Um, but what we need is, is is a different way to do this and not to do it through accidental means. There is a new horizon and the, the new horizon is, you know, rather than what I described earlier, these assays, maybe we can model them uh, in in what they call in silico. And, and, and in, rather than doing the physical experiment, you could do a kind of uh, a computer-based experiment. And then the computer can learn about certain drugs. And if you can change those drugs and make them fit better, for example, into those uh, proteins to, to make new drugs and inhibit them, for example. So that's a new paradigm shift. You know, the the future is going to be uh, iterating all of these compounds and then the computer itself learning what the best fits are. Mm-hmm. And then uh, that kind of learning will go into what we call a, a kind of AI function that you have algorithms that optimize uh, various inhibitors, et cetera, or design. And then we can create those. We can chemically synthesize them and test them in the real, you know, situation in cells or or in 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 vitro uh, testing so that's the, the massive next paradigm shift wow yeah that's fascinating and brilliant to see the different ways in which things like ai can be utilized in pharma we're hearing so much more about ai and to hear that specific example is brilliant would you say that these methods can only be used for specific kinds of diseases or is there a potential across the board Oh, without doubt, there is a, a, a potential around the board. I mean, if you now look, look at COVID, COVID itself uh, f- from uh, the virus itself, you, you have uh, proteins on the outside, these kind of spike proteins. And not, not only are these uh, spikes uh, uh, as targets, you, you can also target uh, how these uh, viruses replicate as well. There's there's a bit of uh, uh, a molecule called RNA in there as well. So th- so we can target the processes of that RNA in particular for synthesis. So the virus actually is a hijacker. It, it can't replicate itself, but it, it uses a cell and hijacks its system to produce itself. So it's the perfect parasite. And so what you have... Um, is that we can model these things. We can model the proteins, we can model the virus. And then we know for a fact that we've got antivirals. Antivirals exist. Um, but I think one thing we've missed with COVID, and, and I think we look back on this, is that we boosted our immune system to try to kill 
you know, the virus. But the virus is really quite sly. It, it tries to avoid the immune system. That's that's why it survives. And and so what you need is a combination treatment. You need uh, antiviruses, a bit like antibiotics, if you like, and that kill the virus, but also use immune responses. But perhaps also um, use other uh, other combinations. Um, for example, you know, glycans. Uh, these are uh, small sugars. Um, that if you have, if you take these from plants, they boost your immune system. Uh, there's various, so there's there's going to be in future you're going to have uh, uh, multiple ways to 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 kill these viruses, and you need those multiple ways because then because there are so many variants. So if if you shoot them with one bullet, you know it, it will evolve and and change into something else. If you shoot them with three bullets, it's dead. You know, it, it, you know that's and that's the that's the future. We we, we have to use multiple uh, ways to do that. But um, but also with COVID, one of the biggest problems is you know we need rapid diagnostics. So you know we can't have like two days and you have your PCR and then after two days you know you're not well. You know you're severely ill. So what you need to do is if if there's a quick test to tell you very accurately what. Uh, what variant you got, and then administer the drug at the same time, then that would eradicate a lot of the problems that we're having at the moment. Yeah, that's brilliant. Excellent. Um, so with the, I know you mentioned the need for kind of multiple treatments for COVID um, and specifically to kind of deal with the different variants. Will there be a kind of ongoing need for drug development from from now on or do you think that the kind of multiple treatment approach will eventually sort of nip it in the bud as it were there is no doubt in my mind that the defeat will be a combination uh, of you know this this virus and using computational means is is one way to do it and there's a very interesting project that um that in in part uh, a new fund uh, called quantum 7 will be funding and that is where you have very quick diagnosis of the disease, you know, what type uh, of, of variant you have, but also you have, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the drugs ready so, so that you can eliminate those. And, and also look at geographies, you know, epidemiology, where is the nucleus of these, where we can deploy these diagnostics and, and the drugs as well. So we can, it's like fires, you know, where, where can we, absolutely put out the fires before it spreads so that's that's the concept yeah that's great a lovely analogy there um so moving on from from covid now i know one of your focuses is neurodegenerative diseases and i was just wondering what you kind of see on the horizon for the treatment of these yeah i mean we'll look back in 50 years time and um and look at um how we treated uh, these neurodegenerative diseases uh, in a very basic manner. We don't have any drugs for Alzheimer's at the moment. There is nothing. Um, there's no, no disease modification. You know, it's a desert. And right now, what, what the problem is, is really we don't understand the biology. You know, what what is it that's causing Alzheimer's per se? And there's a number of theories. Uh, but one thing without doubt is that you know uh, it may uh, the the causative agent may be just a protein, 
you you may have heard of uh, if you remember the BSE crisis. Mm-hmm. crisis. Yep. Now the BSE crisis was from uh, a, a prion disease, and prions are small bits of proteins that basically you can't kill. It's not. It's, it's if it remains there, it's very difficult to get rid of, uh, and it's not alive either. So what these things do is they infect your your body and starts making clumps of little proteins, if you like. And these clumps end up in your brain. And and not only prions, but also Alzheimer's. Uh, uh, there's a protein called beta amyloid, for example. Uh, so they, they start clumping in certain parts of the brain and starts killing your memory cells. So I, I think the first thing that needs doing and will be done, and this is something that Pharmacure is working on, is to try to diagnose those those clumps, if you like, before they become a big uh, plaques in the brain, before they can stop your cognition so that you don't recognize your parents and, you know, all of these kind of memory uh, impairment that happens. So the idea is to try to understand more of the biology, but try to prevent these clumps from forming. So one way to prevent these clumps from forming is, is add, you know, compounds that we know. And we've got these two drugs, which is quite exciting, actually. These two drugs, one's an antidepressant and one's an old antipsychotic. If you add them to blood, and we've done this in, in a prion case as well, where a, a young lady in her 40s had this disease, uh, this protein aggregation disease. And there's no cure for this. It's called GSS. And, uh, you know, normally they just die and they start, you know, getting low cognition. They can't recognize their parents. They can't watch TV. They stop walking. Eventually, they stop breathing. But with these two drugs, for the first time, she was able to talk. You know, so this means that there is some plasticity. There is something that, you know, the whole brain doesn't die. There's certain bits that we can recover. And it's not the same, but at the end of the day, it's these kind of mechanisms that have to be understood. We have to diagnose, have new, you know, diagnostics that we can say, hey, this person's got this disease. This is the 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 problem. In other words, this this protein is the problem which is aggregating. This is the shape of that. And then thirdly, we've got the drugs that we can, you know, disaggregate those or disassemble those. So those three things have to come together, and that's called precision medicine. So it's not only diagnosis. What's the point of diagnosing someone with a disease when you don't have a, a therapy as well? You know, so those two things are going to come hand in hand, and uh, and that's that's what we're trying to do at Pharmacure, just try to uh, uh, diagnose those those. And we're talking about biology. You know, there, there's a couple of papers. Uh, Professor Andrew Droig, who's who's a member uh, of our board and the founder of Pharmacure, he's written a paper recently that is that viruses are probably the culprits for Alzheimer's. You know, uh, viruses were found in brains uh, where you have these clumps. So they may be the instigator of, of, the, of the disease. So the biology is catching up. You know, once we know um, what, you know, what causes these things, then we, we're better prepared to assault them. Absolutely. That's really interesting. And it'll be great to see how that develops. It's been a pleasure talking to you and absolutely fascinating to hear your thoughts on drug development and everything that's likely to be coming our way in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 
And that is all we have time for this week. It's been great to focus on the pharma industry in China with Isabella Fonso and hear about Dr. Fareed Khan's experiences within the biopharma field. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from if you haven't done so already. We'll be returning next week with another brilliant episode brought to you by Helena and myself, along with the rest of the Gold team. We look forward to seeing you then. 